Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Imagine the US is involved in a massive global conflict and tens of thousands of young Americans, kids really, are dying in places most Americans have never heard of, let alone can find on a map. To quell any dissent, Congress passes something called the Espionage Act. Despite its name, this strict set of laws is not meant to prevent foreign spies from interfering in U.S. affairs, but instead to prevent Americans from voicing their opposition to the war. Now imagine a four-time presidential candidate of one of the largest political parties in the country is arrested for voicing his opposition. He's convicted and sentenced to 10 years in prison just for saying the U.S. shouldn't be engaged in a bloody overseas conflict. Maybe you think today the U.S. is inching ever closer to this possibility. Or maybe you think this could never happen here in America because, well, this is America. And things like this just don't happen. During World War I, this is exactly what happened. 100 years ago, convict number 9653 ran for president of the United States. It was his fifth time running, but his first time from behind bars. His name was Eugene Debs, his slogan, from Atlanta prison to the White House. His health was failing, his candidacy was destined to go nowhere. But from a prison cell in Georgia, Debs received nearly a million votes from Americans who were angry with their government. Many of the campaign buttons did not even say Eugene Debs. They just said prisoner 9653, and there are pictures of him in his prison fatigues. History may be written by the winners, But in American presidential politics, history is often shaped by the long shots. God bless you, and God bless America. These are the stories of the campaigns of presidential primary losers, the candidates who didn't make it onto the final ballot but still changed how we see America. No generation can choose the age or circumstance in which it is born. But through leadership, it can choose to make the age in which it is born an age of enlightenment an age of jobs and peace and justice. These are the stories of America's presidential primary battles, the contest for the most powerful office in the world. I'm Connor Powell, and I'll be your host. For the last decade, I've covered some of the world's most violent conflicts and turbulent international elections as a foreign correspondent. Now I'm back in the U.S., digging into the fascinating tales of campaigns that bring a kaleidoscope of color to our black and white history. You're listening to Long Shots. Today, Eugene Debs, the original socialist. The aftermath of the Civil War was a time of extraordinary economic growth in America. Railroads opened new opportunities. Technical advancements spurred massive industrial advancement. America rapidly moved away from its agricultural roots. This gilded age, as it was dubbed, created unprecedented wealth in the country, especially for a few fortunate families. You know their names, these industrial barons, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, 
the Vanderbilts. They were rich, really rich. Our current billionaires look downright middle class in comparison. The top 1% owned roughly half of America's wealth by the end of the 19th century. The only thing that grew faster than their fortunes in the second half of the 19th century was the number of people living in poverty. The Gilded Age was, says Sean Goody, an editor at Jacobin Magazine, a fractious time with massive economic inequality. This was a time when industrial capitalism was really um, getting off the ground in the U.S. and really wreaking a lot of havoc, but also creating a lot of possibility, I guess, in the lives of Americans. Millions of immigrants, mostly from Europe, poured into the country via Ellis Island in New York, seeking opportunity. According to Terrence McArdle of The Washington Post, most found work in dangerous jobs, offering low wages, long hours, and little security. If you're a railroad worker, got hit by a train, were injured, there was no way to pay the medical bills. If you were killed, there was no money for your family. This was the world the tall, lanky, and blue-eyed Eugene Victor Debs was born into. He was named after two of the uh, most important sort of socially conscious novelists of the 19th century, uh, Eugene Sue and Victor Hugo. That was the historian Michael Kazan of Georgetown University and one of the several excellent guests who are going to help us tell Debs' story. Debs was born in 1855 in Terre Haute, Indiana, to French immigrants. He lived the quintessential American life for the time. Terre Haute was a really important part of his life. So growing up in Terre Haute, um, in this pretty close-knit community, he had a sort of sense of a kind of basic, I think, social egalitarianism that was instilled in him. Like so many of his generation, he left school early at the age of 14 to go to work, finding a job on the railroads, making a few cents a day. Debs began to work on the railroads, first as a fireman, and then he became the head of one of the major railroad brotherhoods, fairly powerful unions of craft workers on the railroads. It was in the Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen, a sort of European-styled skilled trade group that Debs first made a name for himself as a labor activist. He served in various leadership positions before entering into politics. Debs was dubbed the Blue-Eyed Boy of Destiny when he was elected at 23, the city clerk of Terre Haute. A few years later, he won a seat in the Indiana General Assembly. Debs was well on his way to being a respectable and utterly conventional politician. It seemed like he was going to have possibly a career as a kind of mainstream labor leader and perhaps as a United States senator or governor. Debs believed deeply in the promise and power of American democracy. He was actually fairly conservative. In the 1880s, he was basically, he had an idea of trade unionism just as a way to sort of produce the best worker possible for the employer. But he left the legislature after just one term, finding the horse trading at the state capitol unseemly. Initially, Debs was anything but radical. Let us persevere in our objects. Let us organize more fully and we shall become more of what we are already, a power in the land for good. Brothers, gird on the armor. The whole world is a battlefield and we must be the heroes in the fight for our rights. As the United States industrialized in the 1880s and cheap immigrant labor flooded the country, he soon realized that workers, both native and immigrant, needed stronger representation before employers 
to secure better wages and working conditions, both of which were pretty awful and only getting worse as the Rockefellers, Carnegie's, and their ilk were getting richer. The realization that he came to was if you believed in the basic principles of American democracy, the idea that the people should be sovereign, that people should have control of their lives, uh, that there shouldn't be unaccountable hierarchies in, in political or economic or social life, then you really had to grapple with the, the changes that industrial capitalism was bringing. As industrial capitalism changed America, Debs changed his politics to meet it. In 1893, he helped establish one of the first large industrial unions in the U.S. Unlike smaller craft guilds, the American Railway Union, or ARU for short, brought together all railroad workers regardless of their skills. Well, almost all. A union which involved all railroad workers' potential, no matter what their craft was and no matter you know, what their ethnic background, except, unfortunately, the union against uh, Debs' wishes excluded black workers. The ARU was designed to be large enough to confront employers by strikes if need be. Shortly after its creation, the ARU successfully mounted an 18-day strike against the Great Northern Railway after it drastically cut workers' wages. The victory emboldened the ARU and Debs, the group's president, its success would set up one of the most consequential and violent showdowns in American economic history. As cheap immigrant labor flooded the workforce, the U.S. economy boomed in the 1880s. But working conditions for laborers, including children who made up roughly 15% of workers, only deteriorated, with many toiling on the factory lines for 12 hours a day, six or even seven days a week. As the 1890s neared, employer labor tensions reached a boiling point. Organized strikes were increasingly common and bloody. Late 19th century was the most violent period in labor capital relations in American history, by far. They were very violent affairs because of the means that employers in the state used to try to crush worker self-organization. As boycotters were often met by armed resistance, when the U.S. economy crashed in 1893, corporations like the Pullman Palace Car Company, maker of luxury railway sleeping carriages, laid off workers and cut wages to preserve profits. Pullman was also a neighborhood located on the south side of Chicago. It was literally a company town. Workers rented from and lived in Pullman-provided apartments and were forced to shop at company-owned stores. It was designed as a model community. In reality, employees were totally reliant on their employers for almost all aspects of life. When the 4,000 highly skilled Pullman workers demanded cuts in rent in the spring of 1894, George Pullman, the company's founder, refused, and fired them. Pullman workers went on strike and asked Debs' American Railway Union to help them. The American Railway Union voted to support this boycott, and that meant their members are going to boycott pretty much every long-distance train in the country, which, not surprisingly, uh, caused havoc in the economy. The strike sent a shockwave through the U.S. economy, since nearly every long-haul train had a Pullman sleeping car attached. 
By summer, more than 100,000 railroad workers across the country had joined the boycott. Pullman stands before you as a self-confessed robber. The paternalism of Pullman is the same as the self-interest of a slaveholder in his human shadows. You are striking to avert slavery and degradation. The American economy came to a screeching halt. The railroads were the pivotal, the essential American industry in the late 19th century. You couldn't get any business done of any size if you didn't use the railroad. Debs gained national attention as the president of the ARU and was called a dictator by those who opposed the strike. The boycott was so successful that the Democratic president, Grover Cleveland, took the unusual step of going to federal court to stop it, using the argument that it prevented the mail from being delivered and was, therefore, illegal. The government uh, got an injunction in federal court to crack down on the strike. They sent in federal troops uh, to break the strike, and they arrested Debs for breaking the injunction. Debs and other leaders of the union. The government's response was as swift as it was forceful. 12,000 armed U.S. troops and an assortment of federal agents moved in and crushed the strike. In all, 30 workers were killed, dozens more injured. Property damage exceeded $80 million. As head of the ARU, Debs would end up spending six months in jail for organizing and directing the uprising. He would exit prison, a changed man. The Pullman strike was really formative and moving him in a more radical direction. He came out of jail a convinced socialist. By the time Eugene Debs was arrested for his role in the Pullman strike, his political conversion from conventional Democrat to radical socialist was well underway. Pullman and the government's violent crackdown represented a philosophical turning point for him that was long in the making. This sort of turned Debs off, uh, not surprisingly, to the idea of an eternal partnership between unions and their employers. At the Woodstock County Jail, Debs read, dined nightly with the sheriff and his family, and received near daily visitors. Among his guests, the Milwaukee socialist Victor Berger, who brought Debs a copy of Karl Marx's Das Kapital. Debs, however, didn't lurch towards the European revolutionary-style socialism. Instead, he believed the U.S. political system, with its two political parties backed by corporations, would have to change for workers to see any improvements. He sort of realized that the state is in the hands of the wealthy and the powerful, and you can't really appeal to the benevolence of an employer or Uh, rely on the political class. Dramatic change faced a key problem. Workers weren't sufficiently organized. Unions are the building blocks of any worker control society from their point of view. They want to make it easier to organize and join unions. The way that he thought about it was you have to organize workers in the workplace, and you also have to unite workers at the ballot box. Debs emerged from jail in November of 1895, a national figure, and convinced the ballot box was key to delivering a more democratic United States. In front of 100,000 eager supporters who met him at the Chicago train station after his release, Debs quoted Thomas Paine and invoked the spirit of the Revolutionary War and the Declaration of Independence, not Marx, to drive his new philosophy home. Convinced that there was no way that 
the capitalist class, as he called it, was ever going to compromise uh, with the workers, if the workers had to have their own party and win elections and take over the country. Debs's political philosophy may have shifted, but he was still a cautious activist and resisted any public association to socialism. In 1896, he endorsed the populist, William Jennings Bryant, who had the backing of the Democratic Party for president. The two Midwesterners shared a similar distaste for Northern elites and their financial influence over the American political system. The Republican candidate, William McKinley, backed by the business community, easily defeated Bryan. A few weeks later, on January 1st, 1897, Debs publicly declared himself a socialist and set out to form a new political movement. I am for socialism because I am for humanity. We have been cursed with a reign of gold long enough. We are in the midst of a generational war. Boomers just die. Xers, Karens, millennials, entitled brats, Gen Z, ungrateful TikTokers. I'm Carol Costello, a veteran journalist, and I have a new podcast series called I Hate Your Generation. It invites people in different generations to talk frankly, face to face, about everything from cancel culture to racial justice to socialism. Contentious, yes, but healing too. If you don't get your kit or that old guy, I Hate Your Generation is for you. Listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It's available now. At the beginning of the 20th century, American workers were seething with anger and frustration. Corrupt political bosses and industrial barons had enriched themselves at the expense, many believed, of the working man. Workers weren't really being represented necessarily by the major parties. So there was an opening for the Socialist Party there just because of the economic straits that workers were in. But the Socialist movement was far from unified. German immigrants pushed for a European-style political revolution. Christian socialists asked, what would Jesus do? while anarchists seemingly wanted to tear down everything. The charismatic Eugene Debs avoided these internal battles. He stayed above the fray in the Socialist Party. And I mean, he was aligned with the center to the left wing of the party, but he didn't really engage in factional battles or anything. As the most well-known socialist in the country, Debs was pressed to run for president in 1900. He was a kind of natural pick at that point. Debs, at first, refused. He said the various socialist factions would need to make common cause under a single platform before he'd run. Setting aside their differences, they did, and Debs ran under the banner of the fledgling Socialist Party. His was a uniquely American form of socialism. When asked to define it, Debs referenced scripture and sounded more like Walt Whitman than Karl Marx. Socialism is merely Christianity in action. It recognizes the equality of men. It was perhaps a somewhat naive view in retrospect. Some critics in the socialist movement derided his moral vision, calling it impossibilism, and wanted a more revolutionary-style leader. 
Still, most socialists look to Debs. People who felt he was misguided at the same time found him to be a very likable person. He was a brilliant orator and was able to, to speak to people's needs, and that's really where his power lay. In 1900, no one expected him to win, but he began to lay the foundation for a party intent on trying to win at every level of government and to influence the larger political conversation. He saw these campaigns as a way to recruit more people to of socialism as a positive thing. In his first campaign for the White House, Debs received nearly 90,000 votes. That is barely a blip in the vote totals of American political history. Over the course of the next 12 years, Debs would run for president three more times. He crisscrossed the country, giving speeches, arguing for his vision of a more perfect America. Debs urged the adoption of now completely mainstream reforms, like a 40-hour work week and the right to unionize, while supporting a woman's right to vote. He railed against child labor, Jim Crow laws, and big business, which supported both Democrats and Republicans. He would tell his audiences, he said, you can vote for what you want and not get it, that is, vote for me and not get it, or vote for what you don't want and get that. Millions would hear the powerful orator speak, but few would give him their vote. Many more people loved to hear him speak than actually voted for the Socialist Party. In the early 20th century, socialists scored victories in local elections and ran several large cities, including Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Schenectady, New York, and Butte, Montana. By the time the 1912 election arrived, both Democrats and Republicans had begun actively supporting policies aimed at improving the lives of workers. Debs only grew more radical on the stump. In front of 15,000 people in New York City, he called for workers to rise up. The Republican, Democratic, and Progressive parties are all branches of the same capitalist tree. They all stand for wage slavery. He won nearly a million votes in 1912. Riding Debs' coattails, some 1,000 socialist candidates won elections across the country. The vote total basically increased steadily from 1900 to 1912. And 1912 was like the high watermark in terms of percentage. Democrat Woodrow Wilson would win the presidency, echoing many of Debs' previous positions. Socialist Party membership began to decline as many gravitated to the Democratic Party. Debs' campaigns and the ideas of the socialists who, who followed Debs uh, did, I think, help to nudge, in some ways, both parties, but especially the Democrats, who styled themselves to be the working-class party. While Debs never came close to competing for the presidency, his voice, says the progressive activist Domiki Konst, changed American politics. What Debs was able to do was captivate a country, raise awareness around issues, but he also showed the viability of these issues in electoral politics. When World War I erupted in the summer of 1914, on that faraway continent, President Woodrow Wilson vowed to keep the U.S. out of the conflict. It was a popular move. Few Americans wanted any part of the great European conflict. Like many socialists around the world, Debs also opposed the war, arguing that the working class would be nothing but cannon fodder for their capitalist rulers. Capitalist wars for capitalist conquest and capitalist plunder must be fought by the capitalists themselves. 
So far as I am concerned, and upon that question, there can be no compromise. And no misunderstanding as to my position. I have no country to fight for. My country is the Earth. I am a citizen of the world. It was the criticism that they would have had of pretty much any other war, but in particular, he thought that it was pitting workers against each other, workers in different countries against each other, and that um, elites were the only ones that would gain from something like this. But once the fighting broke out, socialists in other countries quickly dropped their opposition. All socialist parties around the world have been opposed to supporting their capitalist governments uh, going to war before war began in 1914. But then these socialist parties turned out to be full of people who were actually nationalists as well, who were afraid of uh, their countries, you know, being taken over by foreign powers. At first, it looked as if the U.S. would avoid the conflict. But that was before German submarines began sinking American ships in the Atlantic Ocean. In April of 1917... The U.S. declared war on Germany and quickly instituted a draft to grow the U.S. military. Days later, the Socialist Party of America ratified an anti-war platform. They said this is a war only between empires, between capitalist powers who want more territory, more wealth for themselves, and uh, we can't support this war. This is not a war that workers are going to benefit from. Congress also passed the Espionage Act, the first in a series of laws aimed at crushing opposition to the war. The Wilson White House also launched an aggressive propaganda campaign to bolster support for the war, arguing it was a fight to save democracy. The world must be made safe for democracy. Its peace must be planted upon the tested foundations of political liberty. While members of the American Protective League, with the blessing of the U.S. Attorney General Thomas Gregory, searched people's homes and mail, dissenters of all sorts, including socialists, Suffragettes, pacifists, were rounded up and jailed for resisting the war effort. The struggle to make a family can be so painful, sometimes you just have to laugh about it. That's why I created IVFU, a podcast about the pain, joy, angst, and love of trying to make a family the new-fashioned way. Join me for uninhibited, honest conversations with patients, doctors, egg donors, adoptive parents, and more. I'm your host, Sam Shaber, singer-songwriter, storyteller, and infertile mama. Find us at IVFUpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you stream your pods, because it's all about being a family. Not long after the U.S. entered World War I, Congress passed and Woodrow Wilson signed one of the most controversial laws in American history. The Espionage Act of 1917 was designed to prevent critics from subverting U.S. military operations and interfering with the military draft. A year later, the law was amended and strengthened further with the Sedition Act of 1918. It banned any speech aimed at the U.S. government deemed disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive. Anti-war organizing was just not acceptable in any way. And so any sort of impediment to the war effort was unacceptable. These laws made it a federal crime, treason really, to criticize the war and impede the draft. But opposition to the war effort was widespread, and not just among unions and labor groups. 
Most Americans view the conflict as essentially a European dispute, while the newly instituted draft sparked organized resistance. Across the country, young men skip draft physicals. In Indiana, one county's entire cache of draft cards disappeared. Boycotts of businesses that supported the war were organized. Despite his failing health, Debs once again crisscrossed the country, this time railing against the war. He didn't pull any punches. He, he really kind of eviscerated the idea that this was a war for democracy. When federal agents began arresting dissenters, peace activists, and socialists, it was clear Debs was firmly in their crosshairs as well. Undaunted, Debs continued to speak out against the war and in support of Russia's Bolsheviks, who had taken power a year before. Knowing that the federal government was tracking his language, Debs was careful with his words. He never criticized the war directly. On June 16, 1918, in Canton, Ohio, wearing a tweed jacket despite the summer heat, Debs denounced the, quote, junkers of Wall Street, comparing them to the aristocrats in Germany that controlled German society. He did make the point during the speech that he believed that the war only benefited the, as he would put it, the capitalist masters, meaning the, the ruling class. Dripping in sweat, Debs went on to tell the 1,200 or so young men in the crowd. The working class have never yet had a voice in declaring war. If war is right, let it be declared by the people you have your lives to lose. You need to know that you are good for something more than slavery and cannon fodder. These were dangerous words. For as Debs spoke, federal authorities were in the crowd taking notes. It was a pretty unremarkable speech in a lot of ways because it's the kind of speech that he delivered many other places. But the bottom line is to oppose the war, to oppose conscription, the draft, and that was the underlying issue was forced conscription would make you guilty of sedition. The Chicago Tribune headline the next day read, Debs wakes up howling at war. The U.S. may get him. Other newspapers called Debs the most dangerous man in America. He was arrested two weeks later. During his trial, Debs offered no defense, only telling the jury during his closing arguments, I have been accused of having obstructed the war. I admitted I abhor war. I would oppose the war if I stood alone. I believe in free speech, in war as well as in peace. On November 18, 1918, just as World War I was ending, a jury found Eugene Debs guilty and sentenced him to 10 years. Suffering from a heart condition, an aging and frail Debs went off to prison as America's most famous political prisoner. In the history of American politics, there may have been no longer long-shot presidential candidate than Prisoner 9653, an aging socialist in a capitalist country, and four-time presidential loser incarcerated on charges of sedition. But that is who the Socialist Party nominated in 1920. In some ways, it was a political stunt by a party that needed attention. It was also a genuine effort to spark a national conversation about American freedoms during wartime. Remember, thousands of people were locked up for opposing the war, and Wilson's promise of a war for democracy looked less and less successful 
as European empires just redrew their borders. The war was beginning to be, in retrospect, rather unpopular by 1920. And that, who were put in jail for opposing the war, you know, began to look better to a lot of Americans. Uh, they had during the war itself when Americans were actually over there fighting and dying in, in, in Europe. Debs's unconventional campaign caught the attention of the country and forced a deeper discussion about American rights and values. I don't think he had any illusions that he was going to win. I think he was really just trying to raise the profile of socialism and also raise the issue of the Sedition Act. This was a way of opposing Woodrow Wilson's policy during the war, of locking people up for opposing the war, most of whom had been radicals of one kind or another, anarchists, socialists, even nascent communists. The press dubbed it the jailhouse to the White House campaign. Unable to give public speeches, nonetheless, Debs became a national folk hero as newspapers carried his weekly statements. The government sent Debs to prison to silence him. A cell only ended up amplifying his dissent. Republican Warren G. Harding would go on to win the 1920 election on a promise of returning to normalcy. Debs received nearly a million votes. Following the election, Debs's fate continued the national debate, with the new president stuck in the middle. Debs's supporters wanted Harding to pardon him. The American Legion and the Ku Klux Klan, yes, the KKK, had actual influence here, argued releasing Debs would undermine the battle against the growing threat of communism. Remember, the Bolsheviks now controlled Russia. Debs was ultimately released, but not pardoned, and walked out of prison to thunderous cheers on Christmas Day, 1921. He would die five years later in a sanitarium in Elmhurst, Illinois, when his heart gave out. He was a real phenomenon, I think, one of the most popular radicals in American history. Shortly before he died, Debs remarked that the Socialist Party was as near a corpse as a thing could be. His successor in the Socialist Party, Norman Thomas, would run for president six times, though he never achieved anywhere near the success Debs had. But while Debs and his party failed at the ballot box, his ideas lived on and influenced the progressive democratic policies of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal and Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. It led to reforms in government and it led to, you know, things like the New Deal ultimately have some, you know, elements of socialism in their programs. Many of his campaign ideas ultimately became staples of American economic life. The 40-hour work week, child labor laws, and basic protections for employees. He raised the issues that needed to be raised, and we have a much better life because of people like him. It's also not surprising that Debs is back in vogue these days, given our bitter political fights over the Iraq war, civil rights, and income inequality. If you think about the two time periods, I mean, Debs, the monopolies were running amok when he was running. And it's the same thing now. I think Debs' vision is very appealing because we still live in a highly undemocratic country. The most popular socialist these days is, of course, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, followed by New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Think about that for a second. Fifteen years ago, could you name one national socialist politician, let alone two? Could anyone? Now, for the record, both Sanders and AOC describe themselves as democratic socialists 
and members of the Democratic Party. But Sanders has long taken inspiration from Debs. He even did a film about him back in 1979. In all honesty, it's not great. But what from the 70s is? Still, that is how much Debs means to Sanders politically. His message really is a Debsian message sort of updated to today's political environment. Sanders is very much in the Debsian political tradition in terms of his views of capitalism's financial structure and the failures of American democracy to address inequality. He sees the same divide in society that Debs did. He sees business titans and political elites on one side, and he sees workers on the other. And he thinks that in order to bring about a more democratic country, you have to organize workers in the workplace, at the ballot box, and people have to come together to challenge people with power in the country. Sanders differs from Debs in one key area, however. Bernie Sanders has by and large been a Democrat, and he's been a very successful politician. He hasn't been a quixotic politician. He hasn't been doing a using the presidential races as a stalking horse for, for a third party. He's actually been a very successful Democratic politician. Shows that he learned something from Debs. That is, uh, if you want to promote the ideas of socialism, much smarter to do it from within a more mainstream organization rather than to do it as Debs did from outside the mainstream political system. Just being a five-time presidential candidate, an advocate for many now commonplace economic ideas, and a political inspiration for another presidential candidate is a pretty strong legacy for a politician who never came close to winning the White House. His most important legacy, one could argue, was his willingness to take on government policies in wartime and in the face of laws designed to squash First Amendment rights. The thing I would take out of Debs' legacy is that he fought for free speech. He ran from prison after he was arrested for sedition and He raised this issue about the draft that was counter to the White House and counter to our government's policies. Dissent is the very beating heart of American democracy. Dissent gives our democracy life. It allows the U.S. to grow stronger and move closer to a more perfect union. Debs fought for our right to voice our opposition with our leaders, to stand up to the powerful, and to say, you're wrong. In doing that, he came across as a man of great conscience and courage. You've been listening to Long Shots. Long Shots was created by me, Connor Powell, and produced by Gary Scott of Inside Voices. Our sound editor was J.C. Swadek. Sound design was done by Logan Heftel. Thanks to Jake Blue Note for the Long Shots theme song, aptly called Linger. Thanks to Jamie Colasso for providing the voice for Eugene Debs and to Logan Heftel for giving voice to President Woodrow Wilson. And thank you to our social media strategist, Madeline Rosine. Thanks to Starburns Audio for the use of their studios. And a special thanks to the team at Karamis, who built our website at longshotspodcast.com. Karamis is a leader in creative, strategy, and software development. Whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a newly formed startup, 
The team at Keramis will get your concept to the market quickly. If you like today's episode, you're in luck. There's more stories just as bananas as this one. Please hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening. Leave us a review on either Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the Good Pods app. And recommend us to a friend. Until next time, I'm Connor Powell, and you're not.